If you were writing a story of the resurrection, how would you do it? Well, you'd have to start with a dead person, right? You'd have to start with a dead person or uh, maybe a dead hope or a smashed up dream or a wrecked marriage or a lost child or maybe a totally bankrupt business because resurrection stories are not self-improvement stories. And resurrection stories are not good to great stories. No, in order for your story to be a real resurrection story, you have to start with something that is completely dead. Not mostly dead, but completely dead. Something that is lifeless, like ashes. And then if you were to write a resurrection story, you would need, you would need a power source, a really, really powerful source of power. You would need something powerful enough to reverse the effects of the most powerful thing operating on the planet today, which is death, right? I mean, at least it appears to be that way. Death is the end of every story. Death gets everyone. No one can escape it. If something dies, it's over, right? There is no more hope. It's dead. There is no more place for faith. It's dead. So if you were to write a resurrection story, Well, you would need a source of power. And that source of power would need to be other than the thing which has died. Not something from within, not some untapped potential, because that's gone, because it's dead now, right? None of that exists in ashes or in dust. Now, you would need a super source of power that comes from outside the dead thing, outside the dead relationship, from outside of the dead person, and it would need to be more powerful than death. You would need the source of life itself. You would need a creative force that could literally generate life by speaking it into existence. You would need something or someone who could say, let there be light, and then there was light. Yeah, if you were to write a resurrection story, you need a dead thing, and then you need a source of life. And the final thing you would need is a witness, because you need somebody to tell your story. You need someone to talk about it, right? And you'd want that storyteller to be a good storyteller. You want the storyteller to be credible, to be reliable, to have a voice, to have great oration skills, someone with command. That's who you want. You want someone to walk into the room and own the place. Right, So that they could say, let me tell you a story, and people would listen. And maybe some people would believe. Because otherwise, people would just laugh at your story. They would say, oh, that's impossible. Dead things can't rise. You're ridiculous. How can life come from ashes? How can dust breathe? Have you seen this hope? It is lifeless. Have you seen the marriage? It's over. Have you actually read the diagnosis? Because it says it's terminal. Have you checked the bank account? Because it's empty. Yeah, if you were writing a resurrection story, you basically need a dead guy, the creator of the universe, and a witness who is so authoritative that their story would be heard, so universally compelling that their story would be believed. Do you agree? All, all, the, 
All the empty chairs in the room say amen. Nods from the chairs. So it's, in light of that, it's almost embarrassing, really, to read the first story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's almost embarrassing to read the Bible's resurrection story. I mean, who wrote this? Right? This is not what we expect. This story does not command respect. The first witness of the Bible's resurrection story, the first person to claim that Jesus rose from the dead, which, by the way, is the linchpin of all of Christianity. And all, the whole religion falls apart if the resurrection doesn't happen. Even the Apostle Paul says that if the resurrection doesn't happen, Christians are fools to be pitied. So the first to tell the story of the resurrection of Jesus, the first witnesses to proclaim he is risen are women. Okay, so what's the, what's the problem? Right? Well, I'm going to tell you the problem. I'm going to show you the problem. But first, let's read the story. Right? Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared, and they went to the tomb. Here's a little background. This is Sunday morning. That's the context of the story. The very first Easter morning, nobody knows it's Easter yet. The women that the story is referring to are a few women who witnessed Jesus' assassination on Friday night, like two or three days ago. They hurried to prepare spices to embalm his dead body on Friday night, but they were not allowed to continue to work once the sun set because that's the Jewish Sabbath. This is what's behind the Jewish leader's ironic concern to take Jesus down from the cross Friday night before the sun sets because they don't want to desecrate the Sabbath, which for the Jews was Saturday. So the women have prepared spices Friday night. Their, their work gets cut short. They have to sit there all day Saturday and wait. And now it's Sunday morning. They get the spices and they're off to the tomb. They found, this is verse 2, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Tombs were caves, holes carved out of rock. And then they roll a big rock in front of the opening so animals can't get in. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So they come to the tomb, they find the stone rolled away, they enter into the tomb, but they don't find the body of the Lord Jesus. Verse 4, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. Luke calls them men, but they're wearing like lightning clothes. So they appear to be some sort of angelic being, right? And they have the great line, in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you when he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Now, in Matthew's account of this same story, he says, chapter 28, verse 8, so the women hurried away from the tomb, listen to this, afraid and filled with joy. Isn't that interesting? Afraid and filled with joy. And they ran to tell the disciples. Luke's story continues, verse 9, when the women came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and others with them who told this to the apostles. All right, now you might think that the testimony of these women 
would hold some clout, would carry some weight. Because these women, I mean, these are some heavy hitters here. Like one of the women is Mary Magdalene, one of the most remarkable conversion stories in the ministry of Jesus. She's said to be the woman who is literally um, possessed by demons, right? And then freed and then becomes this devoted follower of Jesus. She is probably the woman who pours a year's uh, a, a bottle of perfume on the feet of Jesus worth a year's wages, and she's derided by others. Oh, you're wasting money. But Jesus indicates what she has done is actually to prepare him for his burial, which, of course, hasn't happened yet because he's still alive. In other words, she gets it. She may be the only one of all who get it. The disciples are like, what is going on here? But she seems to be the one who gets it. What Jesus says to her indicates that it is true. She's been listening to him. He told them all, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested, tortured, killed. On the third day, I'm going to rise again. Nobody seems to get it, but she does. She's been listening, and something, she gets it. And then one of the women was Mary, quote, the mother of James, which is a very humble and understated way of saying it's Mother Mary, because James is Jesus' brother. This is Jesus' mom, Mary. We're talking about his own mother, who, who is the only human being who has known for 33 years who this man is and what's going to happen to him, right, in general. She knows who Jesus is. You would think her witness would carry some weight with the disciples. But, Luke continues, verse 11, the disciples did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. And bending over, he saw the strips of linen. These are the, like the, the cloth that Jesus was wrapped in, his body was wrapped in. And they're lying by themselves. And he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Question. Why don't the disciples believe the first witnesses of the resurrection? Why don't the disciples believe the first witnesses of the, res- of the resurrection? Two reasons. The reason given by Luke is that the women's words seemed like nonsense, which is somewhat understandable given how nonsensical resurrection is, right? How impossible it is that a dead man would rise. So the woman, the women, they're telling a truthful story, but it is unbelievable. And then the second reason that the disciples don't believe the first witnesses of the resurrection is, and here I'm making an educated guess, based on my understanding of first century Palestinian Hebrew culture. The reason they don't believe the women is because they're women. That's why. Yeah, in this culture, the testimony of a woman was not admissible in court. It was not considered credible. A woman's story, just to put it bluntly, needed to be validated by a man in order to be believed. Now, I know that's probably hard to believe. These were ancient civilizations 2,000 years ago, right? And they actually, some people actually believed that a person's gender might disqualify them from a role of authority or leadership or the ability to teach others. I know it sounds archaic and hard to understand, but some people actually believed that a long, long time ago. Okay, so given the general impossibility of a dead man rising in the first place, one, and given the cultural conviction about the absence or total lack of validity of the testimony of women, why in the world would all four gospel accounts, all four of the earliest Christian records of the resurrection of Jesus, feature women 
as the primary witnesses of the story? That's the big question. And there are probably lots of really remarkable answers to that question. I'll offer three. First, because resurrection is unexpected. Resurrection is unexpected. The women go to the tomb expecting to complete an embalming process that was cut short by the stop of work at sunset on Friday night, the day that Jesus was crucified. They couldn't finish the job. And so when women go to the tomb expecting to find the body of Jesus, they are surprised to find the tomb empty. The unexpected event is first discovered by unexpected witnesses. Of course it is, because it's also unexpected, right? It's also unexpected. Aren't most real treasures discovered unexpectedly? Right? Like think about the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is a huge collection of Hebrew scriptures that date back to 300 years before the birth of Christ, like that's when they were written, 300 years before the birth of Christ. Arguably the most important archaeological find in the 20th century, clearly the largest collection of Hebrew scriptures found ever in one place, discovered in the 1940s by a goat herd, a teenage boy as is guiding his goats around the desert. And he throws a rock into a cave to scare one of his goats back out, and he hears ceramic pottery breaking. So there's this totally unexpected discovery that is then proclaimed by a completely unexpected witness. Or like the first complete dinosaur skeletons of several dinosaurs, including the ichthyosaur, which is that big fish dinosaur with feet, discovered not by professional paleontologists, not by college professors, but by a little beachcombing girl named Mary Anning along the English Channel in the early 1800s. She's walking on the beach. It's rained the night before. Some, some of the cliff gives way and washes out onto the sand, and she looks up, and there is a full-on skeleton of something that nobody even knew existed. This unexpected witness announcing a totally unexpected discovery. So if you're writing a story about the biggest discovery in the history of humanity, who do you want to be your witness? I mean, you want, like, Sherlock Holmes to discover this, right? You want Indiana Jones to discover this. You want some highly qualified expert. Why were the discoverers of the empty tomb women in this culture, in this part of the world? Because the resurrection was unexpected. It is not what they were looking for. The angels asked them, why are you looking for the living among the dead? which is a question that the women don't respond to. But if they had responded, their answer would have been, because we weren't looking for anything living. We were expecting a dead man. That's why we're in the graveyard, right? One of the answers to the larger question that we're asking in this Easter season during this series called Now What? One of the larger answers to that question, Now What? is because of the resurrection of Jesus, even dead places... Like, we live in this broken world, but we also live in light of the resurrection. So now what? Well, one of the things, even dead places now, even hopeless situations can be resurrected. That's one of the ramifications of the resurrection of Jesus. The women who initially witnessed the empty tomb, they serve to emphasize the reality that resurrection is unexpected. 
The women run back to tell the others, Matthew says, with fear and with joy. Because what they had discovered is not what they expected. What they discovered was beyond expectation. Maybe you're feeling hopelessness about a specific situation in your life. You don't expect anything good to happen here. It is the last place you would expect resurrection. May I gently remind you of something amazing. Resurrection is almost always unexpected. Maybe you're like, sorry, Nate, not here. No, this part of my life is definitely dead. I would say gently again, I would say good. Because it sounds like you have the makings of a resurrection story. Amen. They all start this way. Because resurrection is unexpected. Here's a second reason women are featured as the primary witnesses of the empty tomb. It's because resurrection is initially doubted. It's doubted. We are instantly skeptical. We say, you're going to have to prove that one to me because that sounds ridiculous. Luke writes, when the women came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to the others, but the, but the disciples did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. So there's a lot written about the early initial doubt expressed by the disciples of Jesus. And people have a problem with it. They're like, why do these legends of the faith doubt? How is it possible that the fathers of Christianity doubt so deeply? Well, would you believe them if, if they didn't? Would instant acceptance of the impossible seem like a genuine response? Would the story feel true, in other words, if it didn't involve doubt? Man, the genius of appointing women as the first preachers of the resurrection is that both factually and culturally, there's so much room for doubt here. If, if, imagine Peter comes back from the empty tomb and he's like, Jesus has risen from the dead. Potentially, some people would have said, well, it's good enough for Peter, it's good enough for me, right? The guy carries this authority, even in his recklessness. Maybe people would have believed it. But when women come back with the news that Jesus is resurrected, that the tomb is empty, and the angels say he's alive, everyone doubts. Because everyone, and the brilliance there, friends, is that now everyone has to enter into the battle of doubt and faith on a personal level. A couple hours later, the Emmaus Road travelers... They, they, they meet up with the third traveler on the road, and this is what they say. Some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning. They didn't find his body. They came and they told us they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. <laughs> right? The message of the resurrection is initially doubted. They have told them the truth explicitly. Sorry, they just can't deal with it. Friends, when I committed my life to Jesus as a young teenager, I was taught by my friend Tim to read scripture every morning and then pray for someone who was the least likely to embrace Jesus. Think of the person that was the least likely to become a Christian, to surrender their life to God and pray that they would. And so I thought of my dad. He's 39 years old, not apparently interested at all in God. 
He was the least likely person in my life, the least likely person I knew who would surrender their life to Jesus. So I started praying for him. And I prayed for him every morning for nine months. And then one day, I'm home taking care of all my brothers and sisters. I'm the oldest of six. My dad comes home late, later than I expected. And I say, why were you late? And he said, I just surrendered my life to Jesus. And I could hardly believe it. I mean, I've been asking God for this literally every day. It's all I knew how to do. This is what I prayed every day, but I could hardly believe it. Initially, I kind of doubted it. You know what emotions I was feeling? The same as the women. Fear and joy. And then joy and then fear. And as I went to bed that night, this idea that his life would be resurrected, that my dad would be changed, that he would be a new man, I mean, it was almost frightening to me. Friends, the women's testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, it sends everyone into their personal battles with doubt and faith. Peter sees the empty tomb, wanders off by himself, and he's thinking, what do I believe? What do I believe? And then when we ask that bigger what, what now question, now what question, in light of the resurrection... We're looking at the brokenness of the world. We're living in light of the resurrection. We ask the question, now what? I'm not sure we're always ready for the answer. Because if the answer to the what now question is, oh, you know, it's all going to go back to normal. It's going to kind of get back to the way it was. It's going to be okay. Well, that wouldn't be too scary for us. But Resurrection means that dead people start walking around, right? Resurrection means that places of our life that were no, there was no life there, now are full of life. And that is outside of the box kind of thinking. That, is, that means things are not going to look the way we thought they would, right? This story that we're reading today shows that when resurrection happens, we are going to battle with doubt and we are going to battle with faith as we try to come to terms with what it means, So, why are the women the first resurrection witnesses? In a sense, it's almost like an early example of the media is the message. They are the first witnesses because resurrection is unexpected. And they're unexpected witnesses. Because resurrection is initially doubted, just like they are. And the final reason, and it's easily the most widely embraced reason historically for why women are the witnesses of the resurrection, the first ones, it is this. It is to communicate that resurrection is complete. It is complete. It is full. It is total. It is absolute. It is not partial. It is not a little better this time around and then a little better the next time around. That is not, no, resurrection is absolute, complete. When women, women are the first to proclaim the truth of the empty grave, the reason is because everything is being restored. Everything. It is completely new life, full restoration of all things. Why are women God's choice to be the first to proclaim the resurrection? Here's how Paul says it. It's a little bit offensive. Here's how the early Christian theologians say it. I'm just telling you, it's going to sound a little bit strange. might strike us as a little bit offensive initially. But early Christians talk about the grand narrative 
of the redemption of humanity by referring to two women, Eve and Mary. Okay? Brokenness, they say, enters the world through Eve and her deception. Healing enters the world through Mary and her trust-filled obedience. The story of humanity's sin and brokenness begins with Eve. Yes, Adam was right there, but Eve gets pinned with the blame and it sticks for thousands of years. The story of humanity's sin begins with Eve. The story of humanity's salvation begins with Mary. You may think that Eve gets a bum rap, okay? But it has stuck with her in the minds of the people of God for millennia. Just a little funny aside. I think this is so funny, and I think it's so funny that St. Augustine says this. This is what he says. He notes that in Genesis, when what the women said to the man is not true, the man believes it. And in the Gospels, when what the women say to the men was true, the men don't believe it. Okay, so there's that. Okay, there's that that's happening, right, along with this whole thing. There's this general dullness and incapacity to really get the bigger picture that seems to be sort of a, a, a gender-based uh, unfortunate reality of some men or maybe all, right? But what, isn't it beautiful? Isn't it beautiful that every single detail is restored, right? Every single detail of the human story, right down to the gender, right down to the specific people affected and involved in the story. Isn't it beautiful that Jesus, or, or that, yeah, that Jesus is given life through a woman? And isn't it beautiful and powerful and significant that when Jesus' life is taken away, the message of his life being restored is announced by women. The first to proclaim Jesus is alive are women. We should listen to the women. Okay. We should. We should listen to the women. What are they saying? What is their story? What is their testimony? What are they testifying to? What is their witness? That resurrection is unexpected. Don't discount the dead places. That's where they start. That resurrection is initially doubted. Everybody's got to enter into that struggle. Everybody's got to enter into that battle of doubt and faith. And ultimately, their message is resurrection is complete, right down to the detail. Every single thing gets restored. Every, everything gets restored. Every single thing. The years they're lost, they get restored. The memories that have faded, they get restored. The life cut short by tragedy, it gets restored, completely restored. The opportunities that we have squandered in our own lives because of our self-centeredness, by the grace and mercy of God, they get restored. Everything gets restored, friends. That is the hope of the resurrection. That is the hope of the resurrection. We are living right now in a season of brokenness in this world. I mean, the brokenness is on display, and we are also living in the season of Easter when we remember 
we bring back, let's call it to mind again, the resurrection of Jesus. And the invitation is to live as children of the resurrection. To live now, today, in light of the resurrection. To live according to the hope of the resurrection with the sure confidence that death does not have the last word. All that is lifeless will be filled with life again. Amen? Amen. Amen. So we ask, Lord, in the midst of our humanity, our frailty, our inability to see the big picture, even when it's rolled out post-Easter in Holy Scripture, we pray for the grace to embrace this picture in its fullness, this story in its fullness, in all of its unexpected, initially doubtable, even kind of embarrassing details of its fullness. And we pray for grace to find our lives right in the middle of it. Fill us with the hope that we need, Lord, in this season. For these we've gathered with, fill us with hope. Not a vain hope, a sure hope. Hope of the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Friends, I want to invite you to take a minute, embrace those that you've gathered with, those in your homes. We are longing for community. We are missing it. You've gathered with some. Make sure they know, despite the challenges of the last few days or whatever, that you value them. You're so glad you're with them. And if you're watching this uh, alone in your home, reach out to somebody and extend the peace of Christ to them. May the peace of Christ be always with you. Thank you. Take a moment. Let's greet one another. We'll come back together in just a minute.